Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association of North America's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association of North America or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Clay Nully with TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Adam Yankee. Dr. Yankee is an assistant professor of orthopedics at Rush University in Chicago and the assistant director of the Cartilage Restoration Center. He was the senior author on a paper entitled Differential Contributions of the Quadriceps and Patellar Attachments of the Proximal Medial Patellar Restraints to Resisting Lateral Patellar Translation, which was published in the June 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Adam, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So patellar instability and then concurrently the anatomy of the medial aspect of the knee has certainly been a hot topic and continues to be a hot topic. So before we do dive into the exact conclusions and main study findings, can you give us just maybe the impetus for the study and then kind of the background of your study setup and in, in that regard? Sure. Um, you know, there's many different factors that we take into account when we treat patellar instability. And uh, two very basic ones are that we want our surgeries to be successful and we also don't want to cause any harm. And so we want to try to decrease risks associated with reconstructions. In this case, we're talking about MPFL or MQTFL reconstructions to stabilize lateral patellar instability. One of the concerns about uh, bony-based or osseous-based reconstructions are that you can have uh, resultant patellar fractures, and they're also arguably uh, less tolerant to uh, maltensioning. And so if you tension things too tight or don't set length appropriately, they're going to be less forgiving than a soft tissue-based reconstruction. Uh, that, in combination with the work by Fulkerson and Tanaka and others, have started to show that anatomically, the proximal medial patellar restraints, as we refer to it in our paper, uh, extend proximal to the patella into the quad tendon, and almost 50% of the insertion is in the quadriceps, and the other half distally is in the patella. Now, there's different nomenclature depending on what you look at, and it certainly can be confusing. Uh, in our paper, we call the PMPR, the proximal medial patella restraints, which are basically uh, restraints that go from the extensor mechanism to the femur, but not from the tibia or to the patellar tendon. And then the proximal half of that we call the MQTFL, as others have. And the distal half, which has the insertion onto the bone, is the MPFL in this setting. And so one of the ways that people have tried to avoid these complications are to perform MQTFLs, which are quadriceps-based reconstructions. Uh, this, again, has, is a little bit more forgiving with regards to length changes uh, and also avoids the risk of patella fracture. And so that uh, change in practice, I think, is really guided by the anatomic discoveries that have happened that I discussed, and that certainly can make sense. However, uh, when I would perform uh, dissections or we would look at patients clinically, there would seem to be a more robust band of tissue on the distal half of the proximal medial patellar restraints. And so the, the real question was, what's actually structurally contributing? So there is visually something there, but what's the biomechanical contribution of, of these two components. And so that's really what spurred the interest in the study and trying to put some numbers to it. Uh, there certainly has been biomechanical studies on the MPFL itself, but never the uh, proximal half or this quadriceps insertion. And so to try to answer this question, uh, we set up a, a lab-based study that was uh, with 10 paired cadaveric knees 
And so we potted these in a custom jig that allowed motion from 0 to 90 degrees, and the exact increments are 0, 10, 20, 30, 45, 60, and 90. We put a load on the quadriceps, and then we placed a, a load on the patella that was perpendicular to the quadriceps load and directly lateral. And we used a fixed force, and we looked at the resultant displacement. Uh, we had four real testing states, three that were of particular interest, so uh, intact. We did the approach, which we had to do through a lateral approach. And then we did uh, either the proximal or the distal half was released. So either the MPFL or the MQTFL was released. With the paired cadaver, we did it in the opposite order so that we could do a paired analysis. To, so we did sequential sectioning. And then finally, we did a complete release. And we used that to compare uh, how much motion there was with lateral displacement relative to the intact state. That's a terrific synopsis. Thank you for kind of summarizing the background and the backdrop of that and then and then a terrific study setup. So so the main conclusions were that compared to the MQTFL, the quadriceps tendon femoral ligament, the MPFL, the patellofemoral ligament, was the primary, you know, primarily responsible for resistance to lateral translation throughout the arc of motion from zero to 90 degrees, and that it it provided similar resistance to the fully intact entire uh, proximal medial patellar restraint. Uh, anatomy. And so that was that was pretty interesting, I thought. Uh, but then you did note that the MQTFL may contribute to some resistance and full extension. So did, th did th those results, even though the anatomy kind of shows that maybe the MQTFL is 50% and the MPFL is 50% uh, from a soft tissue standpoint, um, it appears that the MPFL is maybe kind of the primary driver or the primary restraint. Did those results surprise you and your co-authors? Um, it's a great question. I, I don't believe it was surprising. I, mean, I think it just reinforced what we saw with the dissections and other clinical experience where we see a more robust band in the osseous insertion. Uh, I think it's an, uh, your summary was perfect, and that is definitely what we found, that uh, when you sectioned the MPFL in all degrees of flexion uh, past zero degrees, there was a significantly increased amount of lateral translation. And if you section the MPFL first and then section the MQTFL after, in all settings, you don't get significantly more increased translation. If you section the MQTFL first and then section the MPFL, every time you get a significant increase in translation. Um, so it definitely seems like it's the larger contributor in, in this study for sure. I think there's two other interesting points. One is a weakness of our study. The other one is just another observation that we made that, that was surprising, so at least to us. And then we looked back at some existing literature, and it, and it was consistent with some prior studies. So to see the PMPR or the proximal medial patellar restraints, it's very hard to dissect from superficial to deep to find these. And so it's much easier to see their attachment from the inside out. And so I did not feel comfortable performing the procedure arthroscopically, which would have been an option. I was worried about having measurement error or not doing it correctly. And so we did make a small lateral arthrotomy, which is essentially a lateral release. And we found that compared to intact, we actually did see an increased translation with the lateral release, uh, and particularly in full extension. And so the concern there is that the lateral retinaculum could be contributing just as much to lateral translation resistance as the proximal medial uh, patellar restraints. And so that just shows you uh, all the more reason to not use a lateral release in the setting of treating lateral patellar instability unless you have a very specific situation where it's beneficial. 
Um, the other thing is that while I believe our results, and I think that it's helpful for us to further the conversation about MPFL and MQTFL, uh, there's no doubt that any ligament that inserts on a tendon or that where the MQTFL inserts on the quad tendon is a very dynamic function. And so uh, it could have been that if we put more of a load on the VMO, that maybe we would have seen a little bit more of a robust tensioning of the MQTFL than what our experimental setup allowed. And so that's certainly one of the um, weaknesses of performing these biomechanical studies. Uh, but that's just something else to keep into consideration. And then uh, I guess a follow-up point there is that, you know, we just have to keep in mind clinical outcomes. There's certainly many experienced surgeons that are performing uh, MQTFLs uh, as their primary form of uh, reconstruction, and uh, we don't see at this point that they're having significantly worse outcomes, which is another thing to keep in mind. Yeah, that's terrific. Those are really all really salient and great points, especially the one about the lateral lease. I thought that was a really interesting finding and maybe one that's not necessarily intuitive, especially given historically what we, you know, historically now, but historically what we've done clinically with, you know, using a lateral lease to treat patellofemoral type of pain and patellofemoral syndromes. I love studies like this, though, because, you know, we have we've had a lot of the anatomical studies come out, as you mentioned, especially by Dr. Fulkerson and, and Dr. Tanaka um, and, and looking at the basics of the anatomy and establishing these different restraints, but then taking it to the lab and, and doing these biomechanical studies really kind of helps us truly understand, I think, how the, how the soft tissue structures and the medial restraints function. And then of course, the next step that everybody wants to know is, as you alluded to, how does that translate clinically? And so, and so certainly, as you mentioned, uh, there's a number of people doing isolated MQTFL uh, reconstructions. Certainly, there's a lot of people that still do isolated MPFL reconstructions. So does this, does this study change what you're doing clinically or what you and your co-authors are doing? Has, has it changed it at all? And if so, how? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I um, primarily perform osseous-based reconstructions or MPFL reconstructions. And for me, I think this does further solidify that um, I will continue to perform them that way unless it's a revision or a setting where I, I'm really concerned. Um, I think that the way that we do our reconstructions today, especially the average MPFL technique, is probably overkill. You know, we're putting quite a bit of tissue in and creating something that's arguably over-restrictive, and that's why we have to be so careful about not putting any tension on the graft and setting length uh, appropriately. One thing that um, I would say that this had an effect on and, and has led to further research uh, for me um, and does have some clinical effect is that we do think that one of the reasons why we see such an effect at zero degrees is that it's, it certainly seems that the length of the MQTFL and the MPFL are at their longest in full extension. And as you have patella alta, the MQTFL gets even longer at an increased, proportionally increased rate than the MPFL does. That means it'll loosen quicker as you get into flexion. And so uh, I think this started to get me thinking about that an MQTFL might have an even higher failure rate in Alta potentially due to the more significant uh, effects we see in full extension. Uh, but that certainly hasn't been borne out clinically and is, is really theoretical at this stage. Those are great points too. So just from a, maybe a technical standpoint, clinically, uh, Miho Tanaka again too has done kind of a lot of work on uh, showing that the MPFL is probably more proximal than maybe we used to think, or at least certainly in what we used to do sometimes surgically, clinically, when we would do uh, double bundle reconstruction and that sort of thing. And maybe it was actually a little bit more proximal, as it, particularly as it relates to the articular margin. So how are you doing your MPFL reconstructions? Are you putting it, you mentioned doing an osseous technique, are you putting anchors or, or modified docking 
tunnels in the more, more proximal portion of the patella than maybe you used to and kind of take us through your thought process there. Yeah, I, I basically reconstruct the distal half of the PMPR, which is what we defined here as the MPFL. Um, and so just as you mentioned, I try to span the entire osseous uh, portion of the prox of the MPFL insertion on the patella. So I, I use a 3.0 uh, bodied anchor in, at the mid portion of the patella, and then I place another one at the superior medial corner of the patella uh, to try to span that entire osseous component. Uh, we know that the length changes, again, as you get more distal on the extensor mechanism, it becomes more isometric. And so I do think that those distal uh, attachments or at the mid-body of the patella are really important because that graft is going to have the least amount of length changes throughout flexion, which means it'll it'll function the most throughout flexion. The more proximal that you put a graft, the more it will loosen through flexion and the less uh, function it would theoretically have. And so I place it on the proximal half of the patella with two bodied anchors. I place the uh, looped end of the graft on that side with a rongeured trough between the two for healing. I've moved to knotless anchors on the patella because uh, I did occasionally have some patients that would complain of the knots uh, just under the skin. And then uh, those two free limbs are brought through a femoral tunnel uh, that I use fluoroscopy, length changes, and anatomy to help define and I try to really make sure that my tunnel on the femur is quite a bit bigger than the graft. So if a graft is, fits through an easy seven, I'll do an eight millimeter tunnel. And then something that is probably a little bit different, but um, has been guided by some of the anatomic work that we've done as well as this paper is that I set my length in full extension uh, with the patella being pushed proximally so that ideally all of the uh, components would be at their longest length. And then uh, we'd put the two uh, graft ends into the tunnel in that position and then place our interference screw with that proximalizing uh, force. That's terrific. Those are excellent technical points. So can you give us some, a sneak peek maybe or just in general, where is the research going or where do you think the, the studies and the research on this uh, topic are going forward next in, in the near future? Yeah, um, you know, I think you definitely hit on one of the biggest ones is that while I enjoy this type of research, we need the clinical correlation, you know, to help guide us. And um, sometimes we're not powered to find these differences. And, and you may get to a point where you say, well, by the time you're powered, you're not finding something that's clinically meaningful. It's that hard to show. And so I think we all just need to keep that in the back of our minds and not overinterpret any of these results. It hopefully just adds to the to the big picture. Um, the other next steps uh, that we're working on are studies looking at the reconstructions themselves. And so uh, it's in press now, but we did do the correlate to this study, which is uh, an MPFL osseous-based reconstruction, an MQTFL reconstruction, and then a hybrid that has a soft tissue and an osseous limb. And then we looked at lateral displacement in the lab with a similar setup. And we certainly did find that um, you have the ability to over-constrain the joint uh, with osseous-based reconstructions. They're just less forgiving. Um, so it's it's a really important point, and it could be a reason why if, if you don't do a lot of MPFL reconstructions, then maybe the MQTFL is a good idea. And who knows, maybe we'll all switch over to it. It's hard to say, but now that might be a situation where it's helpful. But I, I still feel comfortable that I'm not over-constraining my osseous-based reconstructions, and I do think it is stronger in the end uh, for that reason. And then one final point um, that we're working on is that uh, it, with a normal patellar height, 
it may be good enough, so to speak, to do either type of graft. But as I was alluding to, as you have increased patella alta, if you're not correcting it, I think there's a consideration to look at um, an osseous-based reconstruction in that setting, just due to how much the QTFL will loosen throughout flexion if you get into CD ratios of 1.6 or higher. Excellent points, and that's terrific work. Dr. Yankee's article, Differential Contributions of the Quadriceps and Patellar Attachments of the Proximal Medial Patellar Restraints to Resisting Lateral Patellar Translation can be found in the June 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Adam, thanks again very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I just want to say one thing I forgot. We really appreciate that Anna did help fund this study and make studies like this possible. So thank you very much uh, to Anna and thanks for having me on as well. Absolutely. Thank you for your great work. That concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Please remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast device, and please join us next time.